I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book Club. This week, we'd like to say thank you to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. What is Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Well, let me start with what it's not. Great. It's not a fangirl podcast. It's no. not a stangirl podcast. I wouldn't say we're unreasonably cruel, but I would say we are getting people's POVs, their side of the story, and we feel that it is our academic and ethical duty to assume that there is a second side of the story. So this is a rounding out as a summarization of a memoir and a rounding out of a memoir. I don't think we're cruel at all, but I do think it's fair to hear someone's story and then say, all right, you're telling us a version. So we're kind of sussing the versions. And if you don't want a version sussed, I think that you have every right to not want a version sussed. <laughs> you have every right. Turn back now. You can slam on the motherfucking brakes. Papa Yui, no one will arrest you. Head on out of here. And if you want to keep going, boy, oh boy, are we going to have fun. And now we have one very important announcement. I don't know if we've been clear about what this is so far, but if you have ever wanted to see us do a book live, be in an intimate wormy hang where everything that happens in the worm hang dies in the worm hang. No rats allowed. We are doing a live show virtually with Moment House on March 16th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. GMT. Perfect for the European wormies to have a hang with us. We are going to be breaking down a Cassie David essay live in front of you guys so you can see how the sausage really gets made. There'll be chatting. There'll be Q&A. We will be doing hot takes on any pop culture topic you want to hear our hot takes on. There will be back and forths. I'm so excited. Tickets are $8 right now, but if you wait, they will go up to 10, 48 hours before the event. We're so excited to have you. Please come on out. And the tickets are inside of the show notes in the link in bio on our Instagram. So I hope to see you there. Thanks, guys. And now, Claire, if you were to write a memoir, what would the chapter about this week be called? Make new friends, but keep the old. Okay. This is like less an interesting story and more just like some general life insight. Not life insight, but... If you guys don't know, on our Patreon, we are doing these monthly Worm to the Wise bonus episodes where we answer advice questions that people send us as qualified or unqualified as we are to do so. And one of the questions we get all the time is, how do you make friends as an adult? And this week, I met up with my freshman year of high school roommate. And she is somebody that I like go three or four years without seeing. She happened to be in town. And every time we get together, we have so much fun. And it's like a great time. And so I saw her. We had brunch. It was super fun to catch up. And I just want to say to everybody who's like in a new city, reach out to the people that you were friends with as a kid that you've fallen out of touch with. Even if you fell out of touch, like in bad faith, even if you were like went through a breakup. I have friends from high school where it kind of ended badly and we stopped talking and now we DM all the time. And if they were in town, I'd be happy to hang out with them. I feel like revisit the people you know. I agree with that. So in the rest of that saying, make new friends, but keep the old one is silver and the other is gold. Are you going to ask me to rank you against my old friend? I'm just asking who's gold. No, no, not you. You know why? <laughs> why? Because last night you told me that Bug is your best friend and you've only known her for two weeks. Three. <laughs> not enough. You've She's known my best friend, comma, four legs and you're my best friend, comma, two. Well, it still hurts because you told her you're my best friend and I feel like she is not getting commas. She is. 
she knows. You don't tell her that she's part of a subreddit. She is so mad at me today. Well, I've never been mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Ashley, if your life was a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? God, I'm just going to call it my flop era. I have been in a real funk and I pray to God that I'm about to get my period. Do you know, do you ever have that where you're like, I don't know if these are my real emotions and I kind of don't want them to be. So I hope that my body is just fucking with me right now because that would actually be quite welcome. I feel like a lot of shit's just been like going wrong, but all of it's tiny. Like none of it's important. A lot of really little things have been like, just kind of fucking up or annoying the shit out of me last night. My literal, the bar in my closet came crashing down in the middle of the night. I always, I'm like, what happened now when you were sleeping? What was it doing? Like did a fly land on my closet bar and it just came crashing. It was too much. All these little things keep happening that just annoy the shit out of me. Cause when they keep piling on, I feel like, I'm just in and I don't feel creative and I feel like every time something annoying happens, I'm like, great, this is the time that I like cannot sit down and like reset myself because now I have to deal with another annoying fucking thing. Like this morning, I was like, all right, I have like 45 minutes set aside in the morning to really just like relax and get ready to record today. And then I had to spend that time like reorganizing my shit so I didn't have clothes all over the floor in my room. It was very frustrating. And this weekend, I think I'm going to really, I'm going to get a manicure. Should we get into someone who is, dare I say, at the end of this book, also in their flop era? That's brutal but accurate. I hate to say it, but this book took somebody I had never thought about a lot but had nothing bad to say about and really um, maybe not like them. Well, I will say some people are unqualified and whether or not they announce it doesn't take away from the fact that this book shouldn't exist. This week we are reading Anna Ferris, Unqualified. Anna Ferris was born November 29th, 1976. She is currently 45 years old, and at the time of writing the book, she was 39, 40. I would actually say, if I were to describe Anna Ferris giving relationship advice, I would say unqualified. Yeah, I think before we delve into this book, we do need to add some context, and you know that's very unlike me. Normally, I say the book is the book, but it is important to know. This book was released October 2017. It is predicated on the idea that her and Chris Pratt had apparently I was never a fan but risen to like social media couple status they had been quite a beloved couple I believe they were a couple's goals couple okay so two months before this book came out August 2017 their separation was announced one year after this book came out October 2018 they were officially divorced a couple months after that January 2019 Chris Pratt was engaged to Katherine Schwarzenegger And June 2019, he was remarried. So we are about to recap a book that is sort of foundationally based on her lived experience of having a great husband who, at the time of writing, apparently could not stand her. Yeah, this book is primarily about relationships and the things she's learned throughout life and love. And something interesting is she very proudly doesn't learn. And I mean, we'll get into it. But the thing she wants you to know is that she's never had therapy. She's never been single. She's now divorced twice. At this point, as date of recording, she is married a third time. Which, again, I have no problem with marriages not lasting. But I do think the content of this book 
is by someone who should not be on their third marriage. Yeah, I just feel like a lot of people are unqualified. She takes a pride I rarely see in never self-examining and just giving out advice. I want to start with the dedication to Chris. Your wisdom and strength have made me a better person. Tough. <laughs> Let's get into the next thing, the foreword. The foreword spelled wrong by Chris Pratt because another thing that her and Chris shares, they both take a lot of pride in like playing dumb. When I was asked to write the foreword for Unqualified, Anna's memoir, I immediately said yes without even thinking about it. So this line made me Google when did they separate and when did this book come out? Because this foreword is written from the perspective of a man who is no longer with her. And boy, did a lot happen between then and now. So much. Like, so much. So, allow me to start by asking some questions. First and foremost, what is a foreword? And then he gets into this whole bit about how he can't read and he's never been to a library. He says, I don't really read books all that much. And it's like, I know, that's why you think the Bible's real. I do want to get into, and boy, did a lot happen between then and now. So much, like, so much. They never get into it. Spoiler alert. It is never acknowledged except for two or three usages of the past tense verb. Is it ever acknowledged that they are no longer together? Yeah, there's like one usage of the word co-parent, I believe. And one time she's like, and we were happy. So then after his little bit about not knowing what a forward is, he says, Anna is an important part of my life and she always will be. She asked me to write this forward and I'm doing so because I love and respect her and I told her I would. Okay. It's, I don't know how to describe it. It's cold. It's definitely contract fulfilling. It's definitely contract fulfilling. It really begs the question of which parts of this book were written at which points in their relationship timeline because it does feel very distinctly like he is writing this being like, all right, I'm doing this as a favor, but like we're not together anymore. And her part of the book shows almost no inkling of the fact that she was about to be divorced a second time. I mean, this forward is very stressful. It really freaks me out about who Chris Pratt is as a person, to be honest. So a lot of it's about Anna's kindness. He says Anna is kind, possibly to a fault. Then he says she communes with anybody and makes an instant connection with each person she meets, which lasts a very short time, like a goldfish, three seconds, turn around and you're strangers kind of way, almost like Dory from Finding Nemo or the movie Memento. And that person, that nameless forgotten person, knowing full well that the moment is over, still somehow walks away feeling charmed and deeper in love than before. That's just how intoxicating she is. So he makes it very clear. One of Anna's best qualities is that she views her fans as human. And despite the fact that he views them as nameless forgotten goldfish, she treats them with kindness. Am I reading that wrong? That person, the nameless forgotten person, still somehow walks away feeling charmed and deeper in love than before. Maybe they don't know that they're nameless and forgotten. Yeah, maybe they think that they just had a connection with a person that they've admired from the silver screen. He ends it with, and in all the years we were together, I don't think I smelled her farts once. They're probably not too bad. Enjoy. On the Patreon this week, we have Troy McKeady from Dunzo and Beyond the Blinds. He's going to do a blind items reading with us on Chris Pratt and Anna Ferris. He told me some psycho things about the church they're involved with. We will also be doing a deep dive on his Instagram captions and other deeply questionable things. Yeah, anything Chris has written, we would love to look at this forward and those things and kind of do an analysis of who he is based on what he has given us. I will say from this book, what he's given us is like righteous. I don't know how else to describe it other than like he's very benevolent leader. Yeah, we'll get into it. But there's definitely the sense of I'm always level headed. 
in a way that's like spooky. It really is that like 50s husband of like, honey, don't make me get you a lobotomy. You're being ridiculous. I'm very reasonably asking you to have dinner on the table at five. (laughs) Yeah, there's something a little bit off about it. So then as we love in every celebrity, there's like six beginning parts. So we have the foreword and then we have the introduction called I wrote a book. R-O-T-E. Which is about how she's so unqualified to write a book. And it's like, we know. Can I actually say, I don't think she's unqualified to write a book. I do think she's unqualified to write a book of advice. I don't think anyone is unqualified to write a book. Anyone can write a book. It's their God-given right. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if you have over 100,000 followers on Instagram, it is per God your right (laughs) to take up three hours of somebody's time with your written idiocies. If Chriselle can have a book, if Stassi can have two books, Anna Faris can have a book. Whenever somebody says, is there enough celebrity memoirs for you guys to have a podcast? Let me tell you this. Tori Spelling has six. (laughs) If Tori Spelling can have six, I think Anna can have one. I mean, she's had a notable career in Hollywood and high profile relationships. I don't think that there's anything more that we ask for when it comes to writing a celebrity memoir than exploiting those life experiences. But to tell people how they should live their lives, this bitch is unqualified. She gets into it. So let me say it again. I have zero qualifications and no one should be listening to me. And yet I want to help you with your love life. I do. I have advice to share who you should date, who you absolutely shouldn't, and some cautionary tales too. Plus, I'm fascinated by other people's relationships. In fact, I'm fascinated by other people's lives. And then she gets into like her personal history with relationships. And she says, for as long as I can remember, I wanted a boyfriend so, so badly. My mother, a ferocious feminist, couldn't stand how boy crazy I was. She hated pretty woman and wouldn't let me watch Grease because she disapproved of how Sandy changed herself for Danny in the end. She was adamant that I never be dependent on a man and it created a massive inner conflict in me. I knew I wasn't supposed to long for a boyfriend as much as I did, which just made me want one more. So I would like to just asterisk real quick. Ferocious feminist. Yeah, we're going to come back to that later. She talks about her first boyfriend, her first relationships. And she says, after Chad, I went from one relationship to the next because I was constantly trying to make a bad thing work. I was a serial monogamist and I'm embarrassed to admit that it used to take meeting another person for me to realize, oh, this relationship might not be working. So the past tense of this is very confusing because at the time of writing this, she was still in a relationship that had been a relationship she started before her previous relationship ended. Yeah. So at the time she had read this, she had not once proved to anybody that she was capable of being single for even a day. Yeah. And also her current relationship was ending against her own will. Right. So the only time that she's ever not had another boyfriend lined up, which again, we don't even know that that's true. Like I don't know her entire dating history post Chris Pratt. So her next relationship might have started immediately. I will say they got divorced formally in 2018 and she was married again by 2021. So I do think the fact that she's using was here when the only time she's ever been left single is when she herself was left. That's not a change in pattern. That's just a change in circumstance. Also important to know for the context of this book is that at the time of writing, she had, I'm assuming, a pretty successful podcast also called Unqualified, which was about relationships. I started a relationship podcast because to me, giving advice and hearing other people's stories is better than therapy. Not that I'm in therapy. I probably should be, but I find it too frustrating to not know anything about the person I'm talking to. Hearing other people's problems is, in its own weird way, comforting. It's a relief to me that so many of the trials I've had, other people have had too. And while I may be unqualified, I'm not uninterested. I care and I listen, and maybe I don't always give the best advice, but I really do try. And then she gives an example of a time she gave her friend advice, and she tells a story about a friend that she had who had this like hot and heavy, passionate, two-month-long romance where they were all over each other. 
And for some reason it ended and her friend was in her kitchen heartbroken. So she took her friend's phone, sent a text to the guy and said, hey, it's Anna. I don't know what you're doing right now, but will you come over? She got them back together and then they broke up again two days later. And she's like, he ended up leaving two days later and she was devastated. And I think maybe a little annoyed at me. So yeah, it backfired still. Points for trying. No points for trying. I have to say anybody in their right mind would say, yeah, let this one go. No points. Like you said, she has a podcast called Unqualified that is a relationship advice podcast. And from reading her memoir, you'd think it's the most important work she's ever done. And I think she might think it's the most important work she's ever done. Like this book is the book of a podcaster, not the book of a fairly accomplished actress. Well, I think that the book was marketed towards the podcast listeners, even though Anna Ferris is very successful as an actress. I don't know that she has like a sticky fan base who would necessarily buy Anna Ferris merch, whereas... The podcast listeners might want more podcast in written form. Yes, which is what this is because this book includes multiple chapters of just translated podcast. Transcribed podcast. <laughs> the fastest boy in third grade. She starts with the first crush she ever had, which was this guy in third grade. And she got him to date her by paying for his ice cream every day. He told her that she could be his second girlfriend and then later dumped her because the ice cream wasn't enough. <laughs> she got over him by trying to date the newspaper boy by leaving him a fresh can of Coke every morning. And even he stopped drinking the Coke. In trying to bribe these boys to date her, she still couldn't get a boyfriend. And that was hard on her. And this begins her journey with the concept of closure. She says to get over these two boys, she wrote their name on an orange and threw the orange as far as she could off her deck in her backyard. The episode began my long and complicated journey with the idea of closure. Basically, I don't believe in it. I believe in the concept. I get why people crave it. And I understand why I, even in third grade, sought it from the orange ceremony. It's frustrating to feel so powerless against your own feelings. But as an adult, I've learned that closure is unobtainable. I think it happens at death, maybe. But remembering the pain is a good thing because all of those experiences that you can't close the door on make you a more empathetic person. And that should be embraced. Which I actually agree with. But then later in this book, she goes back and talks about how wanting the person you dated to call you up and say, I'll never be the same without you is reasonable. And she's like, of course, that'll never happen. So you shouldn't desire it, but it would be cool. And it's like, all right, have you ever made a point ever? Okay, so I like do and don't agree with her. I also don't believe in the idea of closure in terms of like when a relationship is over I feel like people use the mask of closure to keep meeting up with an ex yes and like rehashing things and I I mean I have this theory that it's like people act like I just want to know what went wrong I just want the single answer you don't want you to know, know what, what went wrong you know what went wrong what you actually want to hear is them like regret everything and tell you it was a huge mistake and it's the biggest loss of their life and you're so much better like what you want is to see them recognize everything and make you feel good about yourself and so I agree with her there like I don't believe in some sit down to coffee and we're getting our closure but the way that she says that doors never close on these relationships and later in the book she says your past exes will always haunt you what no you don't get closure at coffee but over a couple of years you should have moved on I don't think about my high school boyfriend ever we dated for four years and I literally thought I would jump off a cliff if we didn't get married he literally never comes up in my life now and I it's not because we didn't get closure. It's just because at some point you should move on. I don't know that Anna Ferris has moved on from a single guy she's ever dated in her life. Also, I disagree with the idea that remembering the pain is a good thing because all those experiences that you can't close the door on. I mean, you should be able to. I'm sorry. If you're listening and you're an adult woman, you should be able to close the door on your high school relationships. You need to find it in yourself to get a grip and move on. I mean, truly, 
the thing she says later about like, I see how it would be cool if they called you up and admitted everything was wrong. It actually wouldn't be. And that's what you need to use to give yourself closure. Like what would happen? I actually, I've had situations where I've wished for that. And then I've had situations where I've gotten it. And it does help you realize that that's not what you ever need. Having a guy reach out to you and be like, I fucked up so bad. It's like, yes, I'm glad you admitted it, but you still did those things that are the reason we can't be together. Yeah. And either way, after 10 years, there needs to be a statute of limitations in your heart over a boyfriend. And I'm not saying like if there was like some crazy trauma. okay, but just this idea that the guy you liked in junior year of high school didn't like you back. Like you got to move on. You've got to. You're on your third marriage on him. Close the door. Also, I just want to say I don't think that heartbreak makes you a more empathetic person. I thought it made you like harder. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought like it made you less vulnerable and open to love. I don't know. So then she gives us a listicle. This book is listicle heavy. This one is the professions of men you should not date. Parentheses. I broke my own rules. Close parentheses. The professions are magician, musician, doctor, athlete, chef, therapist, and actor. And then she says basically the only profession that you can or should date is a woodworker or a guy who makes boats. She talks about how she hasn't been to much therapy again. And how it terrifies her. She says her parents used to believe that if a person is in therapy, that it was true validation that they had a mental illness. But in L.A., you're the person with the mental illness if you're not in therapy. So I went once and the therapy asked me where I see myself in 10 years. I said I'd like to live in northern California in a house with a lot of land and plants and maybe an amphitheater to put on plays, I said. He responded, do you realize that in that explanation you didn't mention your son once? I wanted to throw something at him. Um, That's why I want to go there, dick, to be with my son and give him everything I wanted as a kid. I actually don't think that that was clear. The amphitheater is for your five-year-old? Yes. Kids need to be amplified. They're very quiet. Yeah, I think her response is like, why should she go to therapy? So then she gets into her first boyfriend, Chad Burke. They met in high school Chad was incredibly angry. This is the guy who snuck out at night to write rage against the machine lyrics on telephone poles, which turned out to be a theme in my life. I spent a long time feeling drawn to angry men. And when did that stop, do you think? She says that Chris Pratt is so nice, but I could see him having like a real... I could see him having a little rage streak. Oh my God. Well, he's so calm and like, this is how it works, honey. Why is it so difficult, honey? (laughs) I could see him like, this is all speculative. I could really see him being the kind of person that if his meal is like over salted, he just like throws it at the wall. Yeah. How hard is it to not salt it, honey? <laughs> Let's talk about this. This is something we've discussed. I could see him like throwing it in the trash and being like, I could have fed this to the dog if you had made it even a little bit better, but this was worse than food that I could feed the dog. She goes, I was crazy for Chad. He was just so hot and angry, which were my only two main requirements in a man back then. And I was in such disbelief that anyone so good looking would like me that I would have done anything for him. So she's afraid to tell her mom because her mom is very adamant that she stays single. Her parents really push the idea of not dating and not having sex till marriage. So this goes back to the fact that earlier she claimed her mom was like a staunch feminist. She says, I was ashamed. I thought I shouldn't feel the way that I did. So I never told her anything about boys, not Jason Sprott's ice milk or Jason Berry's sodas or anything. But once my mom noticed that something was different, I admitted that I was dating someone and I really liked him. I showed her Chad's picture and I remember her saying, oh, he's so handsome. It was gratifying to hear her say that. This is also not the first time that her mom saying that someone's handsome was like for her validation that she should keep dating this person. And the next time marry him. Yeah. She follows Chad to college. And as soon as they get to college, he 
ignores her. He joins the frat and refuses to see her. And when she comes over to the frat crying, being like, can I please see Chad? His brothers are always like, he's not here. So she stalks him and finds him. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, I've been meaning to tell you that I want to see other people. And then that semester he gets kicked out of his frat. So that January he calls her and is like, will you come over? And she does. She just runs right back to him. They sleep together and then she decides that she needs to break up with him. So she puts on her calendar, March 14th, we'll break up and then dates him for two months, just slowly hating him. And I'm like, I, I actually don't think that's bad. if you're dating someone, and you can't bring yourself to break up with them. Put a date on your calendar and, and just like let your mind be repulsed. <laughs> I do think it's good to like break up with somebody in your head before you break up with them out loud so that you can make a quick getaway. I kind of agree with that. I do kind of feel like when you do the breaking up, you always have moments of like, what if I hadn't done that? So yeah. I think letting yourself have a couple weeks to be like, this is right, right? Yeah, like when mm-hmm. the emotions are high in any direction, there's going to be like fighting and getting back together and blah, 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 and it's going to be dragged on. But if you do it without telling them, you like get to a cool, calm place in your mind without them knowing. Also, this is not advice for any dangerous or abusive situation. <laughs> or honestly, for good relationships. <laughs> or for good relationships. <laughs> like it's not a respectful way to break up with somebody. But if, I mean, if you're 17 and you can't stop breaking up with your boyfriend and you need out, Put a date. Yeah, put a date, but don't tell them. Don't tell them. They'll just act normal, and their normal behavior will be disgusting. (laughs) So she ends up, she tells this weird story where the week before she gets married, the first time she calls Chad after not talking to him for years, and they end up talking for six hours, and his life is a mess. And she says, to be fair, hearing that the guy who treated you like crap might want you back and realizing that you're over it, that you don't need them and certainly don't want them and are actually too good for them would definitely feel empowering. I get the, like little like itch of satisfaction like that small dopamine hit of being like yeah I am too good for you thanks and moving on but the idea of it being empowering I actually think it's extremely toxic well it's like the antithesis of what's empowering if your empowerment comes from a high school ex needing to validate you then you're no better than your high school self and she's 27 at this point I mean she's writing this at 39 so then we get to a chapter called unqualified advice squad goals And the question mark is because because she doesn't have a squad or any friends at all. I've never been the kind of gal who surrounds herself with female friends. I've never had my ladies or the girls. I've always wanted that, but I never knew how to get it. So instead, I clung to the man in my life at any given time. And she does admit, she says, for a while in my 20s, I thought it was cool to say that I was a guy's girl. I didn't realize until later how lame I sounded. She kind of admits to being a pick me girl and being like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. But then she goes on an entire chapter about how she was actually right to hate women, though, because every girl was so mean to her. And while I do believe that these things happened, I don't believe they happened in a vacuum. I think she really has this idea of herself as just like the most innocent, perfect, sweet little girl who just got teased for no reason. And I kind of feel like she might have been so fucking annoying. Yeah, we get tidbits later about how absolutely insufferable she was. So she was acting throughout her childhood throughout high school and stuff too she was in high school plays high school theater program and she also was auditioning for commercials and little things like that for a lot of her life she was in a radio program as like a voice actor when she was in high school and she like did a radio interview about it no no no, what no. Was this? she was in community theater she okay she played scout when she was in sixth grade and she was allowed to do a radio promotion for it and she acted so obnoxious during the radio interview being like so pompous about acting that her parents didn't even say we're proud of you yeah so it does make you wonder what she was like amongst other students not that it matters but don't forget just last chapter she was buying another girl's boyfriend ice cream to try and steal him away and then agreeing to be his side piece in like third grade so (laughs) I do believe that she didn't even want female friends 
She then gets to, it took me longer than it should have to realize just how important female friendships are in my life. The shift only happened fairly recently, maybe in the last three to five years. It takes vulnerability of spirit to open yourself up to other women in a way that isn't competitive. And that's especially hard in Hollywood where competition is built into almost every interaction. Okay. Like you said, she turns 40 while writing this book and it took her until her late thirties to realize that female friendship doesn't have to be competitive. I don't know that she's made friends yet. Like she realized a few years ago that maybe having friends would be fun. But she says, I have it on my to-do list to host a monthly boozy brunch with a bunch of actresses and no agenda so we can just hang out. Right now, the only times we see one another are at these crazy high-pressure Hollywood events where you're all wearing gowns and one of you, not me, but the person I'm talking to, is nominated. So she's distracted and freaked out and in no mood to get into girl talk. Like Emma Stone or Jessica Chastain or Amy Adams, all those stunning women who I never see until the award shows at which they are, rightly, being celebrated I just want to say, these women are not your contemporaries. <laughs> if you invited Emma Stone, Jessica Chastain, and Amy Adams to brunch, I don't think they would come because I do think they have their own friends. Yeah. I don't know. I was just in LA hosting an influencer event, and all of the girls every single day knew every other person there and were friends with all of them. And I also know from acting, you see people at auditions. Like, Leah Remini knew all those people. Like, everyone else seems to be able to make friends in this situation. I don't know. Yeah, Leah Remini made friends with J-Lo. The other thing is she says that part of the problem is that because men get to do buddy movies and stuff and there's often more men's roles, they get to hang out on set, whereas women are always the only women. But I think like she was in The House Bunny, which was a female only movie that she produced. She was in um, The Hot Chick. She was in The Hot Chick, which had other chicks. She was Just Friends, which had that other. Like I mean, I just feel like she has been in movies with women. I think it seems like Allison Janney is her only friend. I wonder if Allison Janney is her friend or her co-star. I think that they get along, but I I don't know if they still talk. So then she goes into how dumb it is to have friends. She goes, to be honest, I think the notion of best friends in general is messed up. It puts so much pressure on any one person, but I truly believe it's okay to have intimacy with different people in different ways. Ashley, you're my best friend. Yeah. Do you feel that you're not allowed to have intimacy with other people? No, sometimes I worry that because I don't have a boyfriend and so a lot of my shit gets dumped on you that it's like a lot, but I also <laughs> am like... <laughs> We had a fight yesterday, if you guys... <laughs> anyway, I mean, that is something that I think about because I'm like, well, you get to, like, divvy your shit up and I, like, don't... I have other people that I talk to, but I, like, see you so much and you're so involved in so many aspects of my life. But I also think our situation is uncommon and I can have intimacy with other people. <laughs> the idea that, like, there's too much pressure on a best friend, I really think she doesn't know what a best friend is. It's not like you pick somebody the way you pick a husband and say, now we have to do everything together. Yeah. The person that you happen to spend a lot of time with is labeled as as a cause and effect thing. You can have two best friends. Like I have you and I have bug. (laughs) Okay. So next we get to losing my virginity and other horrible sexual escapades. She is very sexually inexperienced, which isn't a problem, but I think for someone with like a sex and relationships podcast. Well, it's interesting because she did produce and come up with the concept of the bunny house, which is about a playboy bunny helping a bunch of dorky girls. And then she like was a producer on What's Your Number, which she actually in this book kind of apologizes for. But it's funny because she makes a big deal about the fact that at the time of writing, she'd only had sex with five people, including Chris Pratt. Right. And now since she's married again, I'm guessing her number is six. But maybe not. She doesn't want to become a slut just because she I know. got divorced. <laughs> the only thing about this is that she gets into the fact that during college, she spent a year masturbating a lot. And now she doesn't masturbate at all because she's like afraid of her vagina. 
The thing is, she says, if it hadn't been for my massive insecurity about my body, I probably would have been incredibly promiscuous. I was totally intoxicated with the idea of feeling like a sexual being, and I wanted men to want me. But I was also completely ashamed of my body, especially my boobs or lack thereof, and insecure about my abilities as a lover. And then she explains, masturbation acknowledges your sexuality in a way that we never did in my household. And while it was great to get stoned in college and block out those childhood messages, as an adult, I find it surprisingly difficult, which is perhaps why I still feel an incredible amount of shame when it comes to self-pleasure. She needs to go to therapy. Like, I know I need therapy, but like, I feel like as a 40-year-old woman, if you can't get yourself off because you're like afraid of what your mom thinks. (laughs) I mean, it makes me wonder if she's ever come. Can I tell you? I bet she hasn't. and I bet she doesn't know. I bet you she doesn't know. I feel like there's been a lot of media in the last 10 years before this most recent wave that does acknowledge women's sexuality, but like in a super sanitized way where they'll be like a woman sitting on top of a washing machine being like, it feels like a sneeze. Yeah. Yeah, And so she's just like, I sneeze during sex. I sneeze all the time. Every time someone touches me, I break out in hives. That's coming, right? Then we have listener advice. I was the short girl. What were you? Where she talks about clinging to her childhood label as the short girl. Like she was just the short girl in class, which, you know, everyone has their thing. But then she asked her unqualified Facebook group what they were known as, like what was their label. And she includes like four pages of people writing in their labels. And this is not the only time in this book that we get a chapter of listener mail. And it is by far the worst filler chapter type we've read in a memoir. I love the idea of a Facebook comment section being a chapter of a book. That's what I mean is we've read other people quoting other people for a whole chapter. Tyler Cameron just included essays from his friends and family. These are people she doesn't know. But that's why I think it's really important to see that this is a book marketed to a podcast listenership. Yeah. There's so many different types of filler chapters in this book. I wish I had gone through and counted how many actual chapters there were. She ends that chapter with the lesson here, screw the labels, but also there's power in sharing our stories. And I find this very interesting because this is the problem that she would work through in therapy if she ever went to therapy. And she says it later, her vision of herself is still the 15 year old ugly girl that nobody at high school will talk to. And so here she's saying like, what were you defined as when you were little? Let's get rid of the labels. We're not that person anymore. But then later she like makes a point of taking great pride and still being that person and seeing herself as that person. Like one of the number one things people can take from therapy, even if there aren't like specific things you need to work on, is changing that idea of yourself. Because actually, I would guess a lot of the problems in her life come from the fact that she still thinks she's a 15 year old ugly girl. The fact that she can't be single for a minute comes from the insecurity that if any guy likes her, she has to marry them because no one will ever like her again. That's just not true. She's a famous actress. She's a beautiful woman. She's a famous actress who plays beautiful women. Like she's not cast as the ugly best friend. She's cast as the pretty hot girl. No, but she says she is. She's always like, nobody's ever threatened by me because I'm just the comedic relief. I'm just the funny friend. Like Like you were the aging playboy bunny who was still a playboy bunny. (laughs) Yes. You play the funny hot girl. You're not an ugly 15 year old. (laughs) And Hollywood, the most notoriously critical of people's looks industry, has deemed you worthy of playing that role. The next chapter is called Proud and Angry, where this is actually something that I found really relatable. I just ended up hating the way she talked about it. Yeah, Ashley had a conniption last night. (laughs) She writes about having low expectations of men and feeling so smug every time a guy proved me right. I loved manipulating them into doing something to show me that they were as shitty as I thought they were. But then the rest of the chapter just like repeats that concept over and over again through different examples. 
Some of the examples are insane. She would dress up as a 14-year-old. She'd wear like a little schoolgirl miniskirt and raver boots and put her hair in pigtails. And she would go to frat parties and be like, I'm looking for my sister. And they'd be like, oh, I'll give you a tour of the house. We'll see if she's in my room. And she's like, I can't believe that these frat guys would have had sex with a 14-year-old. And then she's like, also, they might not have thought I was a 14-year-old. They might have thought it was like a weird role play thing because I was going to parties there all the time and they probably knew me. She probably didn't look 14. I know. And she writes about how she just would go to these parties, hit on guys, see how long it took to get invited up to their room, and then be like, see, men don't actually want to get to know anybody. And it's like... But she would go specifically dress slutty to be like, oh, all you want to do is have sex with me because I look sexy at a frat party. Yeah. And then she acknowledges that she was baiting people into being who she thought they were. She goes, maybe I played up the proud and angry persona because I was always attracted to those same qualities in men. I don't know why. I didn't date much, but there were maybe one or two nice guys I went on a couple of dates with who I remember not being interested in. It had nothing to do with their level's attractiveness. I just wanted an asshole. I don't know why women are always attracted to bad guys. Even after being one of those women, I still don't get it. In my case, I was partially drawn to that kind of person because I was a late bloomer and I didn't feel very attractive. So anytime someone remotely good looking glanced my way, I fell hard for him. This isn't like hard to crack. Please go talk to somebody or even take a minute and like keep working out these thoughts. Reread the chapter you just wrote. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you everything that's wrong with you. So then we get to waiting. And this is my chapter that made me the most irrationally angry because her first real audition and real role was Scary Movie. Right. With the Wayans Brothers. So her like first gig in L.A. was her breakout role that was like one of the biggest movies of its time. So she had been acting in college. She actually later talks about having changed her major from acting because she decides she's not going to do it. But then she gets a couple little roles up in Seattle and then decides to move out to L.A., gets a scary movie audition and lands the role. And then she talks about waiting tables for five minutes. Yeah. So this chapter called Waiting, which I guess is a callback to the fact that she was in the movie Waiting with Ryan Reynolds is I guess her trying to pay her acting dues about how like she literally says, I never really had to wait tables in LA because I got so famous so quickly. But she's like, once in high school, I was a waitress for three weeks and I hated it. So I quit. And I'm like, why did you say that? And she talks about how she was so bad at it that now she avoids going to restaurants because she doesn't want to make someone remember her order. And it's like, well, other people are good at it. It's, I mean, it's not hard to say anyone's good at it. You just write it down. She said, I'd much prefer ordering delivery or my latest obsession, ordering through Postmates. That's the same thing. That's delivery. What do you, you think? You think Postmates are like making it in those little no. thermodynamic bags or whatever? Like This is a podcast, Claire, and that's a Postmates ad. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's an ad, huh? It might be. <laughs> that would actually make sense. It's an ad. Okay. So now we have another unqualified advice chapter called Should You Move For The Guy? And this chapter made no sense. So she writes that a lot of people write into her podcast unqualified about should they move cities for a man? And she talks about deciding to move to L.A. to pursue acting because of a man. So she writes about how after college, she had actually planned to move to London and work at an ad agency. And she wasn't going to pursue acting at all. But she got cast in a job in Seattle. She was like a local actress cast as not a background actor, but a very small role. And when she got there, she was so unimpressed with the main actors that she was like, wait a minute, maybe I could be an actress. And she also loved one of the main actors. She thought he was so hot. So she says she moved to L.A. to be with him. But she also doesn't. She says, this sounds arrogant, but I knew after a few days of filming, I definitely felt like 
man, if these four actors are younger than I am and can live in LA and have agents and action careers and travel to Seattle and stay in hotels and have trailers on set, maybe I can too. She says, I was trying to be practical. I didn't think acting was going to work for me. I didn't know if I was good enough. But in the end, my parents really encouraged me to move to LA. The shoot took about 21 days and shortly after it was over, I decided to give LA a try. It was a combination of wondering about Ben and also worrying that if I didn't give Hollywood a year, I might regret it. I had nothing to lose. So I figured, all right, if a year from now I'm miserable, I'll pick up and move back to London. And she says, I did move to LA to be an actress, but there's no question that Ben was part of the equation. And then she says, if you have a stable career that you love in the city of your dreams and the only argument for moving is that a guy will be there, there's certainly a good case to be made for staying put. I'm just trying to say that I understand why someone would consider uprooting for love. I did it for far less than love, more like lust. So you didn't do that, though. You moved for a job and then there was also a love opportunity there. And she ended up marrying him. And divorcing him very quickly. Divorcing him quite quickly. Yeah. But I mean, what is she even trying to say here? Like. Yeah, it's very bizarre because she's trying to give the opposite of the conventional advice. Conventional advice would say, don't move for a man. She is saying, well, maybe you will. And who am I to speak? Because I moved for a man. But the thing is, she's using her own life wherein she didn't move for a man, shoehorning that into the idea that you should move for a man and it all worked out. But it didn't work out with that man. She it didn't work her out. Her career. I don't know. It's just like very wishy-washy. It's just one of the most non-chapter chapters in the world. And it goes back to what we said in the very beginning is that she's not qualified to give advice. She would be qualified to talk about her own life, but the fact that she's trying to shoehorn advice into this conversation, even if she was going to give bad advice, I wish she would say something. Yeah, she doesn't even have a take, and somehow her, like, both sides thing is still wrong. Somehow she's, like, giving both sides of the coin, and I'm like, I'm looking at a different coin. (laughs) I think you have the wrong coin. Speaking of traveling, going on a journey, whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Dive into the Roaring Twenties and solve the mystery of a lifetime right on your phone. June's Journey is a game of hidden clues where you'll solve mystery after mystery across thousands of scenes and new chapters are added every single week. I don't know how the other 30 million people who played June's Journey are using it, but I like to use it as a little treat throughout my day when I have a little bit of extra time because I got to the train early or I want to reward myself for reading a certain number of pages. It's such a fun way to motivate myself because as soon as I get my work done, I get to dive back into these exciting mysteries. June's Journey is such a fun way to treat yourself and feel like you are the Sherlock Holmes from that movie, Sherlock. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Anyway, the wedding hoopla. She says, I'm not really into weddings. It's not that I don't believe in marriage, obviously. And it's like, (laughs) wink, wink, obviously. (laughs) She talks about her and Ben broke up in both relationships. One, she went to Bali. One, she went to Tahiti and they had elopements or a small ceremony. And then both times her parents insisted on giving her a huge wedding when she got back. And she also talks about how she doesn't believe engagement should be elaborate, which I honestly agree with. But the first time she and Ben, the first time Ben proposed, she said no. They were just in a ring store and he was like do you like that one and she was like don't do this here like this and then he proposed a few months later and so she felt like she had to say yes so then she gets into the rejection of being in Hollywood and she kind of says when she moved to LA she immediately started dating Ben because she just didn't think she could handle rejections on all front which I think is an honest real statement that she was like listen I'm already getting rejected in LA I don't know that I can be single in LA too so she started dating Ben right away but then she gets into the fact that she's always had a guy lined up 
one of the guys was named Dave and she goes, Dave's arrival didn't suddenly erase the memory of Chad or the sting of that rejection, of course. And meeting Ben didn't erase Dave and Chris didn't erase Ben. But I take comfort in the idea that once you accept that certain relationships will always haunt you, they actually make you a better person. Again, I know we're kind of repeating ourselves here, but so is she. I didn't agree the first time, didn't agree the second time. The next chapter is called Meet My Parents, where she tells 10 stories about how cute and sweet and loving and doting her father is. And then she has this sentence about her mom. (laughs) My mom raised me to have a high level of emotional defense that has been very helpful for me as an actor, but has also turned out to be a major character flaw. It's why I enjoy giving other people advice so much rather than getting it for myself. Doling out guidance helps me not get caught up in my own self-analysis. Get caught up. (laughs) Take a single step on that path. Anyway, so that's what she has to say about her mom. And I'm not kidding when I say 12 pages about how much she loves her dad. Then we get to playing house, which is about the end of her relationship with Ben. She says, it could be easy to say that my first marriage was a mistake. It ended in divorce. So clearly it wasn't the best decision I ever made. But when I look back on that relationship, it barely seems real. It feels as if we were play acting at being married. That's not a good sign. She talks about moving there because when she moved, she had met Ben on the set of this horror film where he was an actor and she was like essentially a featured extra. And then she moved down to L.A., stayed with him for a little bit and landed scary movie. So their power dynamic shifted immediately. And she said, it never occurred to me that this moment of success could have a negative impact on what was then a budding relationship. And she never really talks about it more than that. Yeah. I would love to hear like the practical ways it played out because Ben never got successful. I looked him up. I looked him up too. He's, he's hot. He was, (laughs) he was in so little time. That's huge. (laughs) No wonder he quit. He retired on top. (laughs) This is what she said earlier. I also felt like I didn't have time or the courage to be single in Los Angeles. You see, another aspect of my high defense mechanism involved never letting myself get bummed out if I didn't get a role. I wouldn't dwell on my failures or even talk about them to Ben or to anyone. I feel like I had to keep my guard up and being single and dating makes you vulnerable. I God, imagine marrying a guy that you're like, I can't tell you anything about me. If you know, you'll judge me. It'll make me feel sad. But then she says before their wedding, they didn't talk about anything like, do our ideas about spending match? Will we have children? If we do, will we raise them with religion? We briefly brought up kids right before getting married. And he told me he didn't want any. I explained that I couldn't marry him if that was a certainty because I didn't know what I wanted. He agreed not to take children off the table. That was the extent of our prep for our life together. Ben and I were married for two and a half years. Our wedding was in 2004 when I was 27 and we were together until shortly after my 30th birthday. We obviously weren't ready for marriage, at least not to each other. I still wonder why I did that. I don't have fully have the answers and I don't know if I ever will. I do think like a minute of thinking could get you to a pretty solid answer. It was a rough time for both of us. I was singularly focused on my career at that point and Ben repeatedly accused me of putting my work first. I couldn't understand what he was getting at. I kept thinking... I'm in one of the most competitive businesses in the world. If I don't put all myself into this career, I'm not going to have it. That's true. You just also shouldn't be in a relationship then. I also want to throw in this line. She talks about how she didn't have any friends to like tell her not to date him. And she said, maybe because I was something of a loner, always the girl with only a couple of friends. But the bigger concern than my number of friends was my hesitance to confide in the friends I had. For a long time, especially in my 20s, I drove female friends away because while I love to talk about their problems, I never wanted to divulge or confront any of my own. Okay, let's lighten it up with a little moment from the wedding. They got married in Tahiti. They only invited a handful of people. There were eight couples. It was a really great trip. There was a no gifts rule, but I told everyone that I wanted them to either make something or perform something, and my friends rose to the occasion. Perform something. Ashley earlier called that criminal. And let me tell you something. If you were like, I'm not high maintenance. I don't want any gifts. Just write an original song. Fuck off. I mean, talk about driving your friends away. 
fly halfway around the world and then sing me something original. Fuck you. For her 30th birthday, she made her friends divide up into two groups. One had to make a song and one had to make a dance. And I was like, I cannot think of anyone I would want to hang out with less. On the Patreon recently, someone asked us about our Nightmare Blunt rotation. And I do think she might have made my cut. So this is about the end of her relationship with Ben. She says they went on a ski trip. They barely hung out. She realized she didn't like him. She realized they had nothing to talk about. She's like, we had trouble filling the time with conversation. About two months after that trip, I left Ben. I have to be honest. It felt like a 200 pound backpack had been taken off my shoulders. I was so exhausted from trying to make the relationship work, which I think is another reason I stayed in it so long. The thought of breaking up felt even more draining than staying together. When she says, I tried so hard to make it work, I actually don't think she did. I don't think she did at all. She didn't try at all, which is fine. It's well within your right to not want to be in a relationship anymore. But don't sit here and be like, I was trying so hard. You weren't trying hard. That was the problem. And the problem was that you weren't even interested in trying hard. I'm happy to say that despite having just left a failed marriage, I was not skeptical of love or men or relationships the next time one came around. And as you'll soon see, that happened pretty fast. So then we get into the overlap of this situation. It's not that she realized that her and Ben had dried up and there was no way to make it work. It's that she saw something shiny and new that she felt she could make work better and more fun. She left Ben when she was working on a movie with Chris Pratt. They played love interests. They started getting along really well. She even says that it wasn't romantic between them. She was like helping him fuck background actors. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) But then as soon as she announced that she had left Ben, they got together like that day. When they first met and were like flirting all the time, she goes, even though neither of us was happy in the relationship, that's her and Ben, I was still technically off the market. All the more reason why I was so skeptical of Chris's general kindness. What was in it for him? I think like that's such a deranged thought to have. Like, why would anybody want to be kind to me unless I fuck them? (laughs) Yeah. And then she does fuck him. She like leaves her husband immediately. She's like, this other guy is actually so nice. It turns out Ben isn't the only man. And then she goes in this whole weird thing about how she's like, listen, sure. I broke it off with Ben before I got with Chris, but I'm even though I didn't cheat, I wasn't innocent. And I'm like, I don't think anybody would call you innocent here. Like as much as he might've sucked and you guys might've been incompatible to do it over the phone and then fuck Chris Pratt immediately is like, mean not innocent so then we have another chapter of listener mail and then we get to take me home tonight literally no 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 okay you have to backtrack and tell the story of their first date chris pratt and anna ferris oh my god i can't believe i skipped this part on their date there was a fly flying around and he smashed it on the table and then it was on the table half alive and she ate it and she was like i just wanted to see what he would do if i did something crazy and it's like yeah that is crazy She's not like other girls. She's disgusting. <laughs> I really think there is such a thing as toxic vulnerability. Has, have people said that before? Is that a thing that I made up? Am I a genius? <laughs> well, Anna Ferris has it. Like the fact that she did that fly thing. I would call that Lena Dunham disease. Which in lieu of being vulnerable, she does like freaky eye catching fucked up shit to be like, nah, I'm weird. The real me is a weirdo who eats a fly. And it's like, no, the real you is like deeply disconnected from your emotions and capable of vulnerability (laughs) and unable to sit alone with your own thoughts for a minute so that you move from one wedding to the next. True. So then we get to the chapter about her and Chris meeting where it becomes a little bit more clear what the timeline was between Chris and Ben. She says, when I first met Chris, I was constantly looking for proof that he was not as great as he seemed. It was 2007 and we were in Phoenix filming Take Me Home Tonight. After she like dumps her husband and hooks up with him, They start hooking up and she goes, we moved fast. I think that's just the way I'm programmed. I like to know where things are going. I need the security and I hate having questions unanswered. 
So when it comes to guys, I like assurance that they're in it. I like being certain of the goal. I guess that's why I didn't date much and was never good at it. I'm too desperate for answers. She also talks about, again, the overlap between Ben and Chris and says the end of the relationship was long overdue. We hadn't been happy for a while. Again, they were married for two and a half years. But the reality is that if I hadn't met Chris, my first marriage probably would have lasted until I found a different someone else. Chris was my cattle prod. Chris and I moved in together after nine months of dating. And she goes, I guess I really like jumping in there. But living with Chris was an entirely different experience. He was so low maintenance. And then she has the only podcast transcription conversation that I would like to acknowledge because it made me cringe. The chapter is called Just Friends, a conversation between a man and a woman who've been pals for 15 years and haven't slept together. My podcast partner, Sim Sarna, is more than just a producer and the willing recipient of a constant barrage of fuck you, Sim. He's a longtime friend. We go back over a decade and it's always been platonic. Here's our take on how that's possible. Their take is that it's kind of not possible. Their take is that they're the only man and woman on this earth who can be platonic. So it starts off with them just like jerking each other off and talking about how they were immediately drawn to each other because the other one is just so funny and so smart and so witty and everyone wanted to be around them. Literally, he says about Anna, I was drawn to you, though, because no one had ever made me laugh that hard. You were really funny. Not only were you funny, but you were self-deprecating and you were you. Were you. Everyone wanted to be around you. And I did, too. I thought you were incredible. And then she talks about him. And they go on and on about how great friends they are and how crazy it is that everybody else fell away and how everyone in Hollywood is so transient, but not them. They're great friends. And then they get into the fact that they also weren't good friends for a couple of years because he was married to someone else that didn't like Anna, and so they fell out of touch. Anna goes, I'm so grateful that Chris doesn't have that many female friends. I have some girlfriends in long-term relationships with their male partners have a lot of female friends, and I don't know, it's tough. Is it a completely archaic idea that men can't have female friends? I mean, you have me. Sim goes, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'm pretty sure that every one of my fiancé Amy's guy friends wants to sleep with her, so I understand feeling hesitant about your partner's relationships. Anna says, totally. But seriously, every single one, even the ones who are married with kids. Anna says... Is that because men are selfish in friendships? Do they think that they're not getting anything out of a relationship with a woman if they can't even entertain the idea of scoring or what? What is it, Sim? Why don't most men like being friends with women? Speak for all mankind, please. And then they just like go on and on, basically say that it is impossible and that all of Sim's wives and girlfriends have hated Anna because, you know, they're just so jealous of her no matter how hard she tries to make them feel comfortable. They just can't believe it. I cannot stand this. (laughs) No, it was very hard to read. And you and I talked about this a little bit before. There are probably friends of the opposite sex who you could fuck. Like that is sometimes a thing where you're like, we've just decided to make this relationship platonic. But like, I do believe that if I went up to 90% of my guy friends and said, hey, I'm single, I'm horny, I need somebody to fuck tonight. Are you down? They would say yes. I think if I just like was like, why not? They'd be like, okay. But that doesn't mean they're actively trying to hook up with me. That doesn't preclude them from, like, respecting me as a person. It has nothing to do with our day-to-day life. Like, the truth is I am in a relationship. And relationship aside, a lot of them. I know a lot of comedians. I wouldn't have fucked them any day of the week. But do you know what I mean? And there is a difference between, like, I do have one specific guy friend who probably would be angling to hook up with me. And, like, that is a different category of person. Like, somebody who actively likes you. But the idea that like anybody who would say yes after a night of like drinking and being like, sure, why not? Can't be your friend is I just like don't understand what that has to do with anything. I agree. I really do believe there's like very few people guys would say no to. So the idea that like anybody who would say yes, you can't be friends with like I was with my friend Albert last night. We have so much fun together. I don't think he's ever thought about hooking up with me. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't he's never in his million years tried. I'm sure if today I texted him, I was like, hey, I just need a bone. 
you'd probably be like, sure, why not? Right. <laughs> but like that has nothing to do with our day-to-day lives or our friendship. I mean, I guess what you're trying to say is that just because a man would fuck you doesn't mean he's waiting in the wings, chomping at the bit, and has no respect for you as a person. All he does is view you as someone he could maybe someday, hopefully, potentially fuck. Yes, I think there's more to me than that. And I have a lot of guy friends. I agree. Anyway. This just felt up so self-serving, this being like, listen, most women are just sex objects, but I'm so funny. Sim, tell them how funny I am. So this is so funny to lead into the next chapter, which is about her body image and the plastic surgery she's had done. So she talks about getting her lips done at one point and then regretting it. And then she talks about getting her boobs done for her. Okay. She was 30 years old. She had just done the house bunny and she was like, I don't know. I never really thought about how not perky my chest was anymore. And then I did the house bunny and I like wanted my boobs to be perkier. Plus I was dating Chris. I feel silly saying this, but he brought out something in me that made me want to be feminine in a very traditional way. Honey, the chicken is unsalted. (laughs) Was that the way? (laughs) Honey, I love your body no matter what you do. He said, perfect answer. That's what they say when they want you to get the boob job. (laughs) Other guys have talked to me about getting implants in the past, and I hated that so much. It would piss me off. I think to hear people who supposedly love you suggest that you should get surgery to change your body, it automatically implies that your current looks aren't good enough. True. (laughs) Yeah, if a guy says you should get a boob job, nobody thinks you're perfect if you are, if they're suggesting invasive inpatient surgery (laughs) to fix something she says for a long time I really thought that getting a boob job defined a person the woman who would get implants was a specific type of person and that person was not me the person was weak and frivolous and fake and all the things I felt I wasn't which makes it particularly ironic that I ended up electing for the surgery I don't know if that's what irony is I don't know if it's irony to be like for a long time I thought everyone who got a boob job was a weak fake bitch and then I got one I guess it is ironic that she wrote that and then said, it bothers me that women are very much criticized by other women for these kinds of choices. (laughs) That is an ironic thing to say next. She goes, they are admittedly dramatic ones, luxurious, perhaps even frivolous decisions that require you to go under the knife so you can have a bigger boobs or a bigger butt. But I don't know why we're quite so hard on each other about it. My harshest criticism has come from women. Um, yeah, it's come from women. Men don't care because it's for them. (laughs) Also, you just said that you thought it was weak. Then we get to weight and she talks about never really having a problem with her weight and then being pregnant. She said it felt so good not to think about it, which makes me wonder if maybe all along I'd been worrying about weight more than I thought. Maybe the seed had been planted so young that it was woven into the fabric of my psyche without my realizing it. Probably. It just is really bizarre to hear somebody who has like no self-awareness. I mean, it's a good reminder to us that maybe at some point we should stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) This is a list that we don't really have to talk about, but it is a list of sex on the beach and 13 other things that sound better than they are. One of them is getting a book deal. She says, I'm halfway through this and I still have about 100 pages left to fill with what? You don't have to say yes to everything. Did she like get fleeced in this divorce? Like, I don't understand why she needed this book deal. I also have another gripe. I'm so sick of people being like, actually, having sex on the beach isn't that good. I've actually never heard that it's good. I've only heard it used as a thing that people are like, when you fuck on the beach, you get sand in your vagina. That's the only thing I've ever heard about sex on the beach. I feel like it's the hackiest, like, not fun thing that people have ever talked about. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) And then she gets into what's your number and why do we reveal it? And she opens with this sentence. 
I've slept with five people, and at this point, dear reader, you've met them all. Chad, the one-night stand from the college dorm, Dave, Ben, and Chris. My number is five. And then the next paragraph goes, I strongly believe that women shouldn't feel any obligation to reveal how many people they've slept with. But if they choose to, they shouldn't be shamed if their list is long and shouldn't be revered if it is short. But then she talks about revealing her list to Chris and him being like, why are you even telling me? I truly don't give a shit. And her having told him because she felt a sense of pride in her number only being five. Well, yeah, I do think that she is older now. So I'm saying she has learned, but I think she learned because her movie bombed. So she was part of the what's your number thing. And she's like, it never occurred to me that people didn't think it was good to have an entire movie whose premise was that you're a slut if you have sex with another man. Even though she talks about learning this lesson, she says, that is why I'm terrified of the idea of having a daughter one day. I would love it, but I'd also have a lot of complicated feelings regarding teaching her how to view her body and her self-worth. I wouldn't want her to learn any of these crazy, my value is tied to my number lessons from me. I mean, good, but also go to therapy if you don't want to pass that on to your daughter and then she talks about raising a boy comes with its own challenges it's so important to me that jack always treats his lovers or significant others with respect i would be furious with him if i heard about a drunken party and got a phone call from some girl's parents saying that jack took advantage of their daughter last night i would excuse i mean i would hope that you would be upset if your son assaulted somebody i would be furious to find out i also love here's this next line so she says that she's lucky she has a boy because she isn't passing down any of the female complicated relationship to sex things there's going to be a day where i need to explain to him that he will have all these crazy urges and he needs to fight them with every ounce of his body that's not a healthy like (laughs) i'm worried jack is gonna have the same sex problems as his mom like he's gonna be very like if i come i've hurt people (laughs) Fight your natural urges with every fiber of your being. This is a real boys will be boys take. Yeah. We have to train the boys to not be boys. And it's like, no, just train them to treat women with respect. Well, and know what it is. It's like a lack of understanding between the difference between consent and not consent. Yes. Not all sex is bad. You don't have to train him to not get horny. That is a very difficult battle to fight with a teenage boy. Teach him to respect people's decisions. Boundaries. And get consent consent you're gonna oh my god she's gonna raise a rapist (laughs) (laughs) if he is taught at home that if you feel horny you're bad and evil and need to fight that within you like that's how it starts actually and if she like i'm like worried about including this stuff i know but if she accidentally especially because i think that he's like getting it from both sides of the horse from his parents like if anna ferris is like don't be horny and his dad's like men are men and your (laughs) wife should bow to your dick (laughs) And then Anna is like, also, any girl who has sex is a slut. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Good luck, Jack. Good luck to the ladies who know Jack. Jesus. Anyway, but then she goes on to say that her messed up relationship to like your number is 80% my mom and 20% graduating high school in 1994 when there was still very much a stigma of being a slut if you fuck some dude at a keg party. I also want to say in this book, she specifically quotes her dad saying to her, I hope you get married young because it's very important to me that you do not have intimacy until you're married and I think you'll want to experience intimacy before you're old so she quotes her dad saying stay a virgin till marriage and then she's like my mom told me that I had to stay a virgin till marriage and it's like not in this book she didn't in this (laughs) book it was your dad and then we have an entire chapter about how much she loves chat roulette because she's so lonely and she loves to like have deep convos with people and she hates small talk then she talks about getting ordained out of boredom but she's never actually married anyone because she doesn't have any friends And then, oh my God, this one's tough. Okay, this is the chapter that makes me wonder how salvageable she thought her marriage was when Chris Pratt clearly thought that the the nail was in the coffin. This chapter is called 
unqualified advice. Unicorns aren't found. They're made. Yeah. So she talks about when Chris started his Instagram feed, posting pictures of the braid he did in my hair or Jack and me on a porch swing. It was flattering that people responded so positively. It was a huge compliment that folks really seemed to admire, at least get a kick out of the two of us as a couple. And then she goes, but as we delve deeper into the world of social media, we unknowingly cultivated an image of a perfect Hollywood couple. Perfect, I guess, in a down-to-earth, just regular people kind of way. And mostly it was lovely. We were happy and in love. And we really are just regular goofballs. So it felt fairly easy to keep up the idea of hashtag relationship goals. Then she says, a while back, Chris asked me if I felt a lot of pressure from being in a high-profile relationship. And I told him that I did. It was an odd circumstance. That he was asking the question made me think he probably felt that way too. So she didn't say, how about you? I thought that we were going to get to the divorce here. We're getting into a couple chapters where I thought we were going to get to the divorce. (laughs) And I wonder when this was written. She said, no one wants to live their lives according to a hashtag. Still, it felt that a good offense was the best defense. So instead of being a couple who never spoke publicly about their relationship, we posted silly photos. We tried to let people into our lives to some degree, and that became a joy for us because we mostly got positive and loving feedback. And who are we kidding? That feels really good. Like, when was this written? Because it kind of feels like she's about to be like, look, we put out nice photos of ourselves because we weren't ready to let you guys in. But that's not the direction she goes. Instead of like getting into the realities of clearly they're putting forth at this front that they're this perfect couple and really they're about to get a divorce. Instead of going there, she goes, I can't understand why anybody would write something hateful to a celebrity. She goes, I bring all this up because one of the most common questions we have gotten on the podcast from single female listeners is how do I find a unicorn like Chris? And so instead of being like, I don't know because he's not a unicorn, we're getting divorced. She tells you how to find one. She says, know what you're looking for. Find someone who's content and well-liked because they make for a more pleasant relationship in general. And then she says, know what you want. And this is the part that scares me. She talks about recognizing a good person and opening yourself up to him or her. I also happen to believe that women listen to their friends' critiques way too much. Sometimes those voices are important, like when a friend recognizes the guy you're with makes you feel like shit. But stuff that's not important is the he's not that hot or he works for UPS or whatever petty put downs they unload on you. Being able to ignore the unhelpful feedback from friends is hard, but so important. Has she ever talked to a friend? Can I tell you, I read this and I was like racking my brain for a time I ever said, ew, but his job sucks or like, ew, he's not. I've never in my life said to a friend, oh, the guy you're hooking up with is not hot. I don't even know if I've ever given that kind of feedback to someone's face. Yeah, no, I've definitely said behind people's backs. Like, I mean, I, I know if you guys are on the Patreon, you know that I've like talked shit about what my friends' partners have looked like, but it's always because I hate them as a person first. Yeah, yeah. If they were like ugly but nice, there'd be no problem. Even if they were ugly and mean, I've never been like, plus he's so ugly. Yeah. I'll be like, he's so mean. Yeah. And then she gets into how like guys will break up with girls because their friends call her ugly. And I was like, I don't even think that happens that often. I don't either. I don't think it happens to adults. I think it happens to people like Shake from Love is Blind, but I don't think it happens to like (sighs) mature adults. I don't even think it happens to Shake from Love is Blind because he was trying to avoid that. And his friends were all like, I don't know, dude. What do you think you're going to look like? They all thought he was being crazy for acting that way. I don't think that that's that common. Also, I want to point out, sorry, this is my last thing. She goes, when people say, how do I find a unicorn like Chris? She says, I think the question is less about how someone can find a guy just like Chris and more about how to find a relationship that is fun and respectful and loving and that appears, even to outsiders, like a happy one. I don't really know what that means. I don't know why it matters what other people think of your relationship. I don't think it should, but I think it does to her. Then we get to a chapter on jealousy, where she talks about the rumor that Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence were boinking. 
which, like Claire said, we're going to talk about blind items on the Patreon this week. <laughs> she talks about how bad it made her feel for this idea that, like, Chris is enamored with his co-star and his wife, Anna, is a sad and aging actress. And she says the best way to combat it is to become friends with those people and then genuinely become happy for them and, like, realize there's no problem there. And then she also says, I think a small amount of jealousy is healthy in a relationship. And a number of my exes were frustratingly not jealous. I don't know that that's true. And I don't think that she's ever been in a good relationship. And I don't think she's in a good place. So I don't think that that's, like, good advice. I agree with that. And then we get to the birth of her son, Jack Pratt. She says that her and Chris had been trying for about a year to get pregnant. And her pregnancy was smooth sailing up until he was born premature. So she said she just really was not expecting any sort of complications because everything had gone so well. And then she went into labor two months early. She was put on hospital bed rest for a week before he was finally born and sent straight to the NICU where he spent like three and a half weeks. And obviously, I mean, this is really sad. And she talks about how hard it was to have the paparazzi be following them and how heartbreaking it is and how like when you're the NICU with all the other parents, it doesn't matter how famous or successful you are. Like everyone's there just hoping for their child's safety and health. And it was, I mean, it was a very sad story, obviously. Jack, I think, is doing well now. So that's great. And she talks about like the terror of, with his condition, they basically were like, we actually won't know how he is fully until he's one and a half years old. They took him home after a month and they were caring for him. But there was this cloud hanging over their head for a year and a half of will there be lasting effects. In the face of that terrifying warning, Chris took on the job of patriarch, which for sure goes against my feminist sensibilities. But he needed to be the dude in that moment and I was happy to let him. And because we both wanted to wear a brave face, we didn't let ourselves break down in any way. I know it sounds crazy and superficial, but I think being in our industry for so long and facing so much rejection taught us how to build an armor. You needed to survive in Hollywood and you had to be able to say, okay, what else are you going to throw at me? I don't really know what that means. She doesn't really get into what that means that he became the patriarch and he needed to be the dude in that moment. So then she talks about some more advice from her mom about being selfish in love. And she really reflects on this advice because she's like, isn't love supposed to be inherently not selfish? And she realizes that her mom was trying to protect her because Anna goes so deep in relationships that her mom is like, you can't not receive love as well. Like you can't just love people so hard and then get nothing, (laughs) which is true. And then she talks about how relationships should be 60, 40, like at any given point, someone might need a little bit more than the other person. And someone might be giving a little bit more than the other person. And that's fine as long as it flip flops. Yeah. And it's never like 80, 20. And I agree with that. And then she has this. She goes, as much as I love sex in the city, maybe we should all agree that Samantha created an urban myth. I admire the idea of sexual freedom, but it's just not in my makeup. I wish it were, but somebody entering my body, I can't stay emotionally uninvested. We hear callers into the podcast talk about the idea and wanting to achieve it. And I don't blame them because it means feeling all powerful. But I've yet to talk to anyone who has actually achieved it. I have to say, I know people who have had casual sex and are okay. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. <laughs> I do think maybe, Anna, you should meet another woman. I'm not saying that like it's for everybody. And I know a lot of people who on the other side are like, I don't want to do that. And it doesn't make me feel good. And I respect that choice. I, I think just- if you don't want to have casual sex, it's really good to know that about yourself and to feel confident in that decision and do what's right for you. This idea that there's no woman out there who can like have a fling and be unscarred for life. I'm like, I actually know a couple people <laughs> who've hooked up with a guy and like moved on. <laughs> I want to talk about this chapter called Friday, January 6, 2017. So at this point, I had not looked into the exact date of their official separation. So I saw 2017 and I thought, wow, this is going to be the day that she and Chris Pratt decided to separate. The chapter is just a schedule of her day. It's about a shoot day for mom. She talks about waking up, 
uh, dropping her kid off at school or having a nanny drop her kid off at school. And then it just ends. It's just, that's just it. It's just her day. Why did she write that? So that you would know what a day in her life looks like. That's nice. And then she goes, she said, he said what it's like to be a couple in Hollywood. And this is where you go, oh, they're headed for divorce. So basically they talk about how when they met, she was more famous than he wasn't. And she was so proud of him. And she was so proud of all this success. And she takes a lot of pride in being like, I knew from the get-go that you were something special. And I couldn't wait for everyone to see what I saw. And I'm so proud that people do. She says, I was mystified by you. The point is, you weren't a household name yet, but I knew it was coming. And he says, well, thank you. Well, thank you. Jesus Christ. I feel like they are like Mike Pence and his wife, Mother. (laughs) And then they get into the idea of like, do you ever get jealous? And she was like, no, but you know, sometimes it does sting when somebody asks me to take your photo. And she goes, sometimes I feel like I don't have the career that I used to. And I do have moments of insecurity about that. I'm so thrilled and grateful that you are doing the things you are. And I have crazy pride in the fact that your talents are recognized, but it can be hard to not have a moment of self doubt when my husband is acting with young women in big movies. And I'm playing a role in mom that while I love it is incredibly unsexy. He says, all you can do is not compare yourself to anybody else. Focus on everything in your control and make that change be something that is moving toward making you better. We're in show business. So for us, it's our career or our ability as actors. But for other people, it might be something else. But change is coming. So how do you make it a good change? It's all about how you feel about something. If it's good, enjoy the good because you know it can go away at any minute. And if it's bad, celebrate the fact that that's going away soon too. Was this him breaking up with her? I don't know if it's like, so this goes back and forth and she keeps going. Of course that's true. And that's very rational view. And I'm really happy to celebrate your celebrity. But like, and then she tells the story, like when we're at a restaurant and somebody asks me to take your photos, she goes, does this mean I'm irrelevant? Even though I really would much rather take the photo than be in it. That doesn't mean I feel any resentment towards you. I don't. I don't know. It's a great industry to be in for a number of reasons, but it also really messes with your head sometimes. He just goes, well, the photo thing is just weird. And we've both had that. He just like keeps rejecting what she's saying it's like you and me having a conversation it really is he just keeps being like sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down and that's the way it goes and she's like well yeah but like right now I'm down and it doesn't get hard he goes no because everybody's up and down at one point I was down and it's like well you were down and then you've been consistently going up he is now at a level of fame he's yeah. a-list forever he's right. Mario <laughs> who he's gonna be Mario who's Mario Mario it's a me Mario <laughs> Are you saying that like Mario's the most famous man alive? I think for him to get to play Mario is kind of like it's written in the stars now. That's an iconic role. He's playing Mario? Yeah. And it was a huge like it was a huge slap in the face of the Italian community. You weren't there for that? You weren't online that day? It's already been released. It's been cast. Who's Luigi? Also Chris Pratt. (laughs) Anyway, so then she talks about unqualified advice. She goes, don't snoop, which I agree with. Yeah, but her reason for not snooping is because you don't want to know if someone's cheating on you. And it's also like they're either cheating or you're getting engaged. So either way, it could hurt your feelings or you could ruin the surprise. I actually don't think you should snoop. I don't think you should snoop. I just same answer, different work to get there. Yeah. Go to bed angry, which is like you can sleep when you're mad. Sometimes you wake up and you're not as mad. And then she says, this is the chapter that will make you vomit. And LOL, there's an entire chapter about how sweet Chris Pratt is to her. Once again, when was it too late to cut chapters? (laughs) He braids her hair. He cuts her her son's hair. He writes her poems, letters, and handwritten notes. He takes big risks, and he sends her flowers every week. And then we get to the final chapter, which vaguely acknowledges that she's going through something. She says, I started seeing a therapist after I began writing this book. I was raised thinking therapy was for the self-indulgent or mentally ill. I could be both. But re-examining my life and revisiting past loves and getting ready to publicize those experiences 
all that has dug up a lot of shit, which shouldn't come as too big a surprise. I wonder if that dug up the shit or getting divorced dug up the shit. I wonder why writing this book made her realize that she needed therapy and then she still put the book out. I don't think she did. I think getting divorced. Like, I think when he separated with her, probably sometime in the summer and the book was gone, she had to add this chapter. And I think she had probably gone to therapy that summer. Yeah. I don't think writing the book sent her there. I think getting left by Chris did. So her only acknowledgement of the divorce is on the final page. As my family is evolving, I hope we can still have barbecues and 4th of July celebrations and that we can proceed forward with love and tenderness. There is no finish line when it comes to relationships. And I think the search for one will just make you frustrated. They will haunt you forever. Can I say, I think the finish line found you. <laughs> I think that relationship's over, sweet Anna. You, you sign a dotted line and that's the end. <laughs> She has two pages of acknowledgments, and I just want to, the final person to acknowledge is and Chris. Chris, who, when I pitched the idea of writing a book, didn't skip a beat. Yeah, he didn't care. He was out the door. <laughs> I love our late nights conjuring up ideas for projects and characters and talking about the rabbits. Chris, thank you for the impossible amount of love and support. Thank you for the flowers. Thank you for finding my credit card at Kmart in Phoenix. Thank you for the deer jerky. Thank you for laughing at my dumb jokes. Thank you for cutting Jack's hair, but that might have to stop. Thank you for just being, for being just about the best person I know. I love you. I wish we had more words for love. Yeesh. I guess in the same way that she had to apologize for what's your number in this book, I do believe she'll write another book. And I think that there will be, I don't think she'll get to the point we want her to get to, but I do think that she'll apologize for this book. Okay. So this is the thing is clearly she's a very repressed person who never even felt she could open up to her friend's or family, or even husbands at points, At one point, she says that women don't look at their own vaginas until they're 78 years old. I feel like, okay, fine. She was repressed. She was raised that way. A lot of people were. There's no shame in that game. She's a bit emotionally stunted. She doesn't have a ton of emotional intelligence. And that's okay. And you can catch up. But I don't think you start with a podcast where you start giving advice. Like, instead of just, like, finding a medium ground where she went to a therapist, or even got a friend, or even started opening up with her husband or having conversations with her parents and like starting to chip away at these things. She was like, I think I should open up more. I'm now going to have a platform where I tell people what to do with their lives because I've never thought about my own. There has to be a middle ground. Yeah, I do find this to be one of the more dangerous books we've read. (laughs) I don't know. I think that like luckily it's not so much about like body image and things like that that are quite harmful. But I do think this I think she gives really bad advice. I will say the only redeeming quality and why I wouldn't call it a dangerous book is because this book, much like you said, Matthew McConaughey's book was essentially horoscopes. Yeah. (laughs) This was very much the tea leaves of relationship advice where she says so many different versions of things in any given chapter and takes so many different stances on any given take that like you could kind of take what you need and leave. You'll read into it what you started with. I guess because there's not a single piece of concrete advice, like there's no statement that ends. And so it's kind of fine. But just like your high school relationship, it never ends. Just like every relationship, this book will haunt you forever. (laughs) Um, You guys, as always, we've got Nikki's Unisex every Thursday. It's a free comedy show with a different lineup every week at Nikki's Unisex in Williamsburg. Starts at seven. Please come out. We've also got the virtual live show that we really can't wait to see. All of our, especially like our... European listeners that it's targeted at your time zone and then also we've got merch and also we love you guys and sign up for the Patreon we've got a lot of oh for those who didn't know people keep texting us or DMing us about Caroline Calloway and being like have you heard about her leaving we were both at her going away party 
and we like get into it a lot in the Patreon. So if you yes. if you want to hear our takes on Caroline Galloway, they're on the Patreon. Yeah. And now a thank you so much to our five star reviewers this week. Thank you this week to Brie Wally. If you're the Wally from the future, you know what? I think everything's going to be just fine. Thank you, Anand 3 and question mark. I won't even ask what the question mark stands for because I respect your need to be Anon. Thank you, Bridget Bumblebee. You are the busiest bee, and I'm so grateful that you were able to have time to write this review. Thank you, Katie the Pest. You are not a pest to me over here. We freaking love bugs. That is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. Don't forget to leave an iTunes review because boy, oh boy, do we love them. And we'll see you guys next week.